Hello and welcome to season two of Asia Inscripted. I'm Vivian Su. And I'm Isabel Beleza. And this is US Asia Institute's podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with firsthand knowledge of Asia. In today's episode, Vivian and I have the honor of speaking to Chris Fenton, CEO of Media Capital Technologies and a member of the US Asia Institute's Board of Trustees. Mr. Fenton previously served as the president of DMG Entertainment and GM of DMG North America for 17 years, where he produced or supervised 21 DMG films, ranging from big budget franchises such as Iron Man 3, Point Break, and 47 Ronin, to niche-oriented films such as Looper, Waiting, Blockers, and Chappaquiddick, grossing $2 billion in worldwide box office. He is often featured as an expert on China and Hollywood in publications including The Wall Street Journal, Politico, Fast Company, Business Week, and China Daily, and he also regularly appears on Bloomberg, CCTV, and CNBC. In the following clips, Mr. Fenton speaks about his upcoming book, Feeding the Dragon, which will be released on July 28th, and will discuss U.S.-China relations through the lens of cultural diplomacy. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. Although Mr. Fenton is a trustee of the U.S. Asia Institute, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. The episode begins with an introduction from Mr. Fenton. Uh, I'm from the East Coast originally, attended Cornell University, got an engineering degree there and graduated in 1993, which wasn't really the best economy to graduate into. So rather than have a bunch of different job opportunities that when I graduated, I had none. So I decided to essentially backpack across the country. I, I stumbled into Los Angeles, fell in love with it and never left. So I found myself uh, getting a temporary job through a temp agency. I worked my way from a music fax room clerk position into the, the mail room of William Morris as an agent trainee and then got promoted to an agent and then eventually went to the motion picture business. And that's where I came across a production company in China that was doing advertisements called Paysetter Productions International. Uh, uh, had a flair to it that I hadn't seen before in regards to the way they were doing production, the way they were doing visuals, and the way that they were doing original content for international brands in China, and decided to sign them as a client. And shortly thereafter, I ended up going over to China and seeing what they were doing there and sort of the potential of that market and fell in love with it and said, you know what, this is something I want to dive into headfirst and be a part of the media business in regards to how it progresses in that massive market in the early 2000s. China had a huge thirst for entertainment content and media expertise that was coming out of the United States in that market. And the government there was also very supportive of trying to bring U.S. expertise into that market to help build their own industries there. Great. Thank you so much for that overview of how you got started in this industry. So you have an upcoming book entitled Feeding the Dragon, which will be released um, this July. So could you give us a brief synopsis of what this book will be about? When publishers first approached me about writing a book, essentially at the time about 18, 19 years of interaction with China in the entertainment, sports, and, and business areas. A lot of publishers were, were talking to me about doing something that was sort of by the book in that business expertise world, you know, the top 10 things you should do when doing business in China, that type of thing. And I felt like it was important for me to bring my experiences to the biggest audience possible, mainly because I thought there was a lot to learn from it. You know, the fog of war in those early capitalistic days between the two superpowers was both colorful and 
entertaining and exciting, but there was also a lot of lessons to be learned. So I've always been a big fan of the author Michael Lewis, and I thought, I wonder if I can create a Michael Lewis version of my story and journey that, that both has great applications in regards to lessons learned, but also entertains and, and brings to life a really colorful journey that readers that weren't particularly focused on China or aren't in the entertainment space or aren't in the sports space, you know, really never thought much about the dynamic between the superpowers. And then, of course, also write it so that the experts, you know, people inside the Beltway and on Wall Street and in Hollywood would also read it and go, wow, this is a really interesting perspective in an applied practical sense, right? I'm not a trained expert in China. I didn't get a PhD in China studies. I'm somebody that sort of fell into it almost like a Michael Keaton and gung ho. And just through the experience and living it, I learned a lot about it on the applied and practical side of things. So I felt like I could bring that to life in a book that would make anybody that read it feel like, wow, that could have been me. That's an interesting journey. I find it amazing how all that interaction occurred and what was going on at the time. And I'm going to think about that when I put my point of view towards what the US-China relationship should be in the future. And, and I'm, I'm referring to any reader that reads the book. Because quite, quite frankly, at the end of the book, I was heavily influenced, and we'll talk about it later, by that tweet that Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, made. And I understood the wokeness, to use that word that's way overused, of the American public to things that were probably done wrong between the US and China. So by the end of the book, I wanted it to describe the fog of war, adventurous journey of doing the exchange of commerce and culture between the superpowers, but also lay the groundwork for how we need to reset the relationship moving forward. Because there were a lot of things we sort of did wrong and a lot of things we were complicit in, in regards to how the American public looks towards China today. So there needs to be a reset. There needs to be something that's done differently. But at the same time, my mission and purpose in the book is to say, it is important that the exchange of commerce and culture continues between two superpowers. We can't go back to our relationship or lack of relationship that the two countries had post-Korean Peninsula War, pre-Kissinger in the early 70s. Because at that time, China was a sleeping giant. Today, China is spreading its wings. So to go into a Cold War relationship with them or a complete lack of relationship is something that's not good for any American it's not good for any Chinese, and it's not good for anybody in the world. So the mission of the book is to tell it like it is, talk about the fog of war that occurred, tell it in an entertaining and approachable way, and then say we do need to change things moving forward. But it's important that we figure out a solution to it to keep the two superpowers working together in the worlds of cultural and commercial exchange. So in your book, you, just, um, you talk about the Hollywood-China relationship and the relationship that China has with um, the American sports and entertainment industry. So could you talk a little bit more about, um, for example, the Hollywood-China relationship or the NBA-China relationship and you know what, why these relationships are so significant for the sports and entertainment industry from both the Chinese side as well as the American side? Well, it's a very interesting relationship because there are things that we make in the United States of America that the Chinese market wants, that consumers want. I'm not talking about the Chinese government. I'm separating the CCP from the Chinese people. But the Chinese people really aspire to have some sort of Western cultural reference 
to engage in sort of the Western culture and to have some of those freedoms that persist in what we have in our culture that they don't have there, right? And when you look at what we make here in the United States, there are a handful of things that they heavily desire. One is obviously our education system. We have real estate and things here in the United States that they love to come in, purchase, and be a part of. And then we have entertainment content, which ranges from the movie business to TV to video games to you know everything in between. And I actually would put the sports business into entertainment too, because it's obviously an entertainment vessel. And it's something that can be monetized. So the goal for me and the business that I worked with was to try to figure out how to help, whether it was company Nike or the NBA um, in the sports business to entertainment entities, whether it was the Paramounts or Disney's or Marvel's, to try to figure out how to, A, get the CCP or the Chinese government to sign off on getting their product in so they can consume it. And then B, figure out how to create relevant touch points in that content so that the Chinese consumer wanted to consume so we could monetize it, right? So it was a two-pronged attack, which was sell to first, then sell to the consumer. And if we were successful at it, and this is what was the amazing purpose and mission of it all, was that we could monetize that market in a way that it has never been done before. And that monetization of China allowed for money to flow from China to the United States at a time when, quite frankly, a lot of our manufacturing complex was in China. And then every time a kid wore a pair of Nike shoes in China, or somebody went and watched a Transformers movie or a Marvel film, there was that little bit of soft power influence that would occur across the East. So I looked at it in, during those fog of war days and, and during days where globalism was really the philosophy that ran rampant as far as our the way we looked at business here in the United States and the way we looked at what was best for the United States people. Um, I looked at the mission and purpose of bringing money out of China and influencing the Chinese consumer through Western content and increasing jobs and increasing GDP here in the U.S. as, as sort of my mantra. You've mentioned a, f- a few times already this um, idea of, of the fog of war. So could you talk about for example, like what might be some of these tensions and conflicts that you notice between American and Chinese interests as it relates to um, the sports and entertainment market, and perhaps how these tensions have evolved over the past few years. I'm not Chinese, and I'll never understand China the way somebody that is, is Chinese and grows up there. So I always look at China as this big onion, and every time you peel off a slice, there's more peels to go. And what the government really, really wants in the most macro level, I think about this. There's 1.4 billion people there. The government can't make them all happy. There's just simply not enough resources on earth to do that. So what they have to do is keep them just happy enough to keep another Tiananmen Square situation from occurring. And there's two ways to do that. One is to build a middle class and create jobs and pull people out of poverty and into that middle class, which is something they've done amazingly over the last couple of decades. So they need to do that. But on top of that, foster the messaging that they continue to accomplish that goal. They're continuing to accomplish the goal of making people just happy enough that they're satisfied with their government. So even at times where they can't pull everybody into the middle class, they want to make sure that those people that are left out of the equation 
feel good about the country that they're in. And, and that's where the Ministry of Propaganda comes in. And during the times when uh, the book took place, there was the State Administration of Radio, Film, and Television, which carried out a lot of the propaganda from the Ministry of Propaganda. So if you look at how we would pitch content in that market that should get monetized, the ability to monetize it. So to go to the government and say, hey, look, we know in the macro sense what your objective is. This form of content, let's use the movie Looper, for instance, right? I don't know, if, have you either of you seen that movie? I, I feel like I have, but I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> so it's a, it's a movie that was directed by Ryan Johnson. It stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis and an actress named Summer Ching. And part of what we wanted to do with that movie was say to the Chinese government, hey, look, we know what your objectives are. We're not looking just to bring a movie that's finished into your market and monetize your consumers and take your money. We're actually make this movie with you. And we're going to use this movie to help you create a talent base that's best in class someday. So we shot a lot of the movie in China. We actually hired a, a Chinese actress to play Bruce Willis's wife way in the future where, where part of the movie takes place. The movie originally was only supposed to take place in America and France. We actually changed the plot so that it took place in America and China. And then 40 years in the future where part of the movie takes place, we actually worked with the Shanghai government to create a backdrop, the cityscape of what they wanted that city to look like 40 years in the future. So if you look at what we did with that film, we helped them create some jobs um, because there was shooting on the ground there that was done. There was a skill exchange where we had U.S. Uh, filmmakers working hand-in-hand -hand with Chinese filmmakers. We actually utilized an actress of theirs, which was a really smart move as far as portraying the fact that they were coming alive as a film industry and had actresses that were capable of being in the greatest movies in the world. And then we actually helped work with them to showcase Shanghai as a, as a city in the future. So all of that allowed the Chinese government to then say, well, wait a minute, you're helping us both on a messaging level and on a building the middle class level, and that needs to be rewarded. We're going to allow this movie into China. So we're actually going to let you have, I think at the time it was 43 cents of every dollar that was made at the box office rather than the 17 cents that was the norm at the time. So when you look at all of that, it was really smart business. It was a globalist strategy that worked. But at the same time, we also trained China to become its own standalone film industry and one that now is heavily competing with the U.S. When, it looked, when you look at everyday box office there in that market. And then on top of it, we also created a movie that was shown around the world. Hawks on China could say, hey, you created the Shanghai of the future that's now portrayed outside of China's border to everybody else in the world. That's spreading these propaganda. And is that something we want to support? So if you look at the argument as to why we did what we did with that movie, in a business sense, in a globalist sense, we did everything right. And it was so smart. And in the fog of war, it was almost heroic. We're showcasing this new trailblazing way of making business, the, the exchange of commerce and culture. But if you look at it as a hawk, there's an argument that we were pandering. There was an argument that we were forcing things into movies that shouldn't have been there, right? So that's where the dilemma occurs. And that's technically where I came up with this idea of a trillion dollar dilemma, right? Because we have all this capacity, but how are we going to do it as Americans without compromising national security interests, values, and principles that are important to Americans? 
And how are we going to do it in a way that China and the Chinese government signs off that we can get access? That's the big question, and that's the dilemma. And how far we want to push either way is the question and the conversations and the things we got to prevent from being third rail issues moving forward if we're going to address this. So following the same theme throughout your interviews and, and throughout this, this episode, you've built a case in favor of cultural diplomacy and soft power exchanges. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about why you believe these types of exchanges are significant? Well, I can say that they're significant because I've seen them firsthand. Like with sports teams, we worked with Michael Phelps in China during the 2008 Olympics, uh, you know, hand in hand with the Chinese people. We did the same thing with Kobe Bryant and LeBron James and Nike and the CBA and NBA. When you see the exchange, whether Americans or Chinese, and how they work together and the camaraderie that it builds and the collaborative effect that it has, the effect, the side effect, the positive side effect of what we did with Iron Man 3 that created this film diplomacy phenomenon that was so magical. And I said, this is something we need to do more often, right? This is something that creates commerce and it's good for the United States, but it also brings people together that necessarily see eye to eye. So my feeling is moving forward, we need to figure out what is the secret sauce? What is the way to keep that cultural and commercial exchange going? Because it's so beneficial to our two countries but we need to do it differently. We can't just be reckless when it comes to capitalistic endeavors. We can't just forget about what's important in national security interests and technology exchanges that end up going awry or patents that are stolen or, or things that allow them to go and make their own product under their own labels in the way that we were making it there. But we got to do it smarter. And it has to be done at a level where everybody involved conflicted or unconflicted here in the United States with a plan through discussion on how to proceed forward. Because corporations have obviously lots of pressure from shareholders, yet the Pentagon and national security interests don't want to just let anything go. And then on top of it, we need to create a middle class here. We see uh, the Chinese government pushing to build a middle class in China, but we need a strong one here too. So constantly moving supply chains over there, which obviously creates security interest problems by themselves, also cause a demise of our manufacturing. All of these things are very complicated issues and show how entangled these two countries are, but there is a way through it. And on the backside of it, I want the reset button pressed and I want new reforms that are smart and, and pro-American. But I also want to make sure we continue the exchange of culture and commerce between the two countries, because the alternative is a cold war that eventually escalates into a war, and that no one wants. That's a great segue into our next question. Um, previously, you mentioned the difficulty of reconciling different interests and what you label as a trillion-dollar dilemma. And so on this same line of thought, given the hardline political tensions that exist between the American and Chinese government at the moment, are there any other challenges in carrying out the people-to-people -people diplomacy that you advocate for? Well, there's lots of challenges because, unfortunately, there's a lot of things that get explained or thought of in a very simple way. For instance. If you look at this idea of decoupling, right? We hear a lot of decoupling. We need to decouple from China, right? Decoupling is not in the best interest of either country. But in, in particular, I don't think it's in the best interest of my country because decoupling is a two-way street. Now, 
where we want to decouple, obviously, and it's going to be very costly. It's going to be expensive to do this. The reset button is not a cheap fix. But if you look at the decoupling that is smart for us to do, COVID-19 crisis has exposed the fact that we have serious security issues as Americans when it comes to crises that are tied up in supply chain issues that are offshore. So we need to bring back and repatriate a lot of that manufacturing. Decoupling shouldn't occur on the reverse move, right? Which is, okay, repatriating manufacturing, that's east-west. On the west-to-east, we need to somehow create that fair level playing field. I would argue, since they're almost as big of an economy and about to overtake us as far as overall GDP in the coming years, they should be seen as a developed nation. And as a developed nation, they will have different rules, more strict rules than what to follow. On top of that, we should have accounting rules and used by both American companies and Chinese companies in order to have access to the capital systems in the West. It's super important that we define the difference between full decoupling and smart decoupling that is parceled out in various areas. The other thing I'll bring up, and I'll let you get on to the next question, is the difference between the Chinese government from the Chinese people, right? The Chinese people are great. I have many friends. I love many of them. I actually really believe they're good people, and they're very similar to us in ways, even though there's lots of differences too. The Chinese government implements a lot of the problems that we have as the United States when we're looking forward to this relationship. I also believe there's great people in the Chinese government. I've met many of them, but I also think they have a directive, which by the way, partially is about keeping 1.4 billion people just happy enough. So what they're doing need to be separated from the actual Chinese people. We can't just say, oh, we don't like China, decouple from China. We actually, we like the Chinese people, we like that market. We want to keep the exchange between our people and their people alive. But we have issues with government. That's what we need to address. We need to address things directly with that government, and that's key. So you talked a lot about um, how sometimes there will be tensions, at least like in the economic sense, about um, supply chains and markets. But we also see that there's a lot of political tensions between the U.S. and China. So most recently, um, there was controversy between the NBA and China over um, comments made on Twitter about the protests in Hong Kong. And um, in the past, a number of of American films have been pulled from Chinese theaters. And with the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, we see that there is a lot of heightened tensions. Given the current relationship between the U.S. and China, what are your thoughts on how the U.S.-China relationship can be rebuilt? Before it's rebuilt, it needs to be reset. Personally, think for me and the way I look at the, uh, at the relationship, the most important moment that has occurred in the last 20 years for me was uh, I was at my son's soccer game and I looked at my phone and I saw this tweet from Daryl Morey at the GM of the Houston Rockets. And I said to a dad standing next to me, I said, oh, do you see this? NBA's business is going to get affected in China. And it caused people to wake up to the fact that, wait a minute, the NBA, uh, a, a business that's been very vocal about political issues here in the country, was political and, and voiced an opinion on something that was happening essentially between the Hong, Hong Kong people and the CCP. They had a dispute with Beijing and they were airing it. And we're coming out as NBA or GM of the Houston Rockets and supporting that ability to protest. But that affected the business of NBA in China 
And because of that, the NBA shut down any further talk about or discussion about this human rights issue. And that made people upset. So my belief is that we need to figure out how to be true Americans and uphold the principles and values of the country to figure out how to get our products into China in a way that they allow it. We probably combine forces with other allied nations to say, hey, China, enough is enough. Play by these rules. Lower your protectionist policies, your tariffs, your censorship outside your borders. You need to change. And that's going to be a very difficult conversation. And it's going to take real, real sticking to our guns type of force. Because there's plenty of things that make it beneficial on their side, too to compromise on what they have been doing until now. Those are difficult conversations. And then post that reset, that's where the relationship will rebuild and get stronger. We will never be allies with China. I just don't see that happening. But we can be strategic competitors, as some of our leaders have referred to it before. And quite frankly, the Chinese are okay with that labeling. So we do need to go through some tough times with this chip. And then that bond will build off of that. Thank you so much for these insights, Chris. I personally really appreciated your comments on you know, the importance of separating the CCP and the Chinese people, as, as well as the ways in which cultural diplomacy can be utilized as a tool um, in U.S.-China relations. So we like to end our episodes with the fun questions. So our last question for you today is, what was your favorite film to work on and, and why is that? You told me you were going to ask this question, and I was thinking about it. The first movie I produced was a movie called Waiting. It was a little teeny movie. Uh, it starred Ryan Reynolds and Anna Ferris. Fantastic cast. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, I'm going to say Iron Man 3 was by far uh, the most significant, fun, and provided like the largest sense of accomplishment because we worked really hard to try to figure out the nuance of getting the Chinese government signed off on what could have been a really profitable movie in China, and it ended up being that. But at the same time, we worked with a filmmaker, Kevin Feige, who runs Marvel, who was adamant not to compromise the best intentions of making the best movie possible. He didn't want to compromise what the brand Marvel meant um, or the characters. He didn't want to compromise the interests of the fans that brought Marvel to the level that it was over the 50 years that it had been around. So he was very difficult on us in regards to trying to find that spot being what we could deliver to the Chinese government to allow that movie into the market and gain access to its consumers, while also dealing with Kevin and a studio that actually was really strong in regards to protecting the values that they have as Americans in regards to compromising on anything that they felt like was beyond tolerable. And, and when I look back at it, I think, wow, Kevin's like the perfect model for how business leaders should look at China, you know, to stand and strong and, and be true to what your business is and who your consumers are here in the United States and employees. Yet also think out of the box in regards to well, what, what can, what are the carrots that you can, you know, dangle and, and, and deliver for that Chinese market in order to get access to it. And we found spot and, we made uh, a lot of money and, and in that market with the film and Marvel now today is the most important and valuable entertainment asset out of the U.S. in that market because of Iron Man 3. So from a fun and accomplishment level, there's nothing beating that movie. 
So thank you so much for speaking with us today, Chris. We really appreciate your time and all your insights. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. And, and I really want you to feel um, my optimism in regards to this. I think we have you know, some tough, challenging days ahead in the bilateral relationship. But I also feel really good that we have, we'll, we'll have cooler heads prevail. Um, we'll get through this and we'll have a much better world because these two superpowers get along really well in the long run. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org slash asiaunscripted, where you'll find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find US Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979, on Twitter at usasiainstitute, and on Instagram at us.asia.institute. This and all US Asia Institute podcasts are made possible in part by the support from Las Vegas Sands, Merck, Fairfield Maxwell LTD, Airbnb, AIG, Phillips, and others.